The, uh, an abbey in Europe, Fountains Abbey, um, if you go there and you look at their guidebook, when you come to their chapter house, the inscription that they have there says this about the room. It says, here is the chapter house. The monks gathered every Sunday to hear a sermon from the abbot, except on Trinity Sunday, owing to the difficulty of the subject. Today is Trinity Sunday, and we're not going to skip the sermon. We are going to do it. I do think it is a terribly hard um, subject, but it's also a terribly important subject. So we're going to focus on it today. And as we start, I don't want to begin with like a, a super intellectual academic kind of discussion about what the Trinity is. I want to start by just talking about experience, human experience and the Trinity. And we start thinking about what we know about God. What we know about God comes from experience. We have a God who has revealed himself in history. So we get, we get that that's the foundation of it all is, this, is how God has let himself be known. We think about maybe how Abraham in the really early pages of the Bible, how he experiences God meeting, calling him to come forward and to go to another land and to be a father of all these peoples and all of this, it's a story. And so we get very early on in the Bible that God is not some God of some, um, you know, deeply academic statement about what God, who God is, but it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a God that we know because of how he's revealed himself and what his story is. And, you know, the Old Testament and the Bible itself is not a book of philosophical speculation. We don't get Aristotle or Plato we don't get the dark cave. We don't get all these different things. We get stories. We get stories about how God has interacted with us. We get a book that some people call a love letter to us that's based on the experience that we have. We get stories like the hundreds of thousands of Israelites who are in slavery, who God in his power releases and helps them find freedom and brings them into a promised land. And after that, one of the other names that will surface for God is it's the God who releases us from bondage. The God who brought us out of those places into these new places. Our experience of God. And then you go forward centuries from those kinds of stories and we get to this man in Galilee who is doing all these phenomenal things where people think initially, oh, well, we've got a new prophet. We haven't had a prophet in a long time. We've got a prophet. But then they begin to see that there's more than a prophet, that there's more going on. He's saying things that a prophet's never said, doing things a prophet's never done. Like there's more going on here than that. And you think about this man from Galilee and the kinds of things that he's saying, like I and the father are one. Or saying, you know, when, the, when he says that and the Jews begin to pick up stones to, to kill him. And they say, we are stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's how they were perceiving him. And seeing that this man, Jesus, is speaking with authority in the way no one else has. He is forgiving sins, something only God would do. He is talking about the ability to judge, something only God would do. And more and more, as people look into the face of this man, they realize that they're seeing God. But along with that, they also know that Jesus is never, has never said that he has the same identity 
as God. Because we and we see that in his words and we see that in his actions, right? We see we see how Jesus will pray to God the Father. We see how Jesus will speak about God the Father as different than himself. And we see how at, at the moment of death on the cross, Jesus will say to God the Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But in all of this, the early followers, those who were closest to him, understood that somehow, some way, he was also God. This whole discussion is taking place not in some ivory tower, in some academic setting where people are doing speculative thought, but it's their experience of it all. And then part of the role and challenge of the early church was begin to, to ask, how do we put all these things together? What do, we, what do we do with this? And there were lots of ideas that were out there, many of which, of course, were wrong. We can think about maybe in the year 140, how Marcion, this man, says, oh, I've got this solved. I got this. Let me tell you how this works. There is a God creator of the Old Testament. There's the God redeemer of the New Testament. And there are two different gods. Solved. But the problem is, when you go look at the Old Testament, God spent just enormous amount of time. Just look at how big the Old Testament is. Just saying again and again and again and again and again, there's one God. And you get, like later Calvin will talk about this doctrine of accommodation saying that's all we could handle. He could forget trying to handle the Trinity early on. And he just wanted to say one God, one God, one God, one God. There's one God. However you deal with this, there's one God. And you get passages of scripture that make that, you know, extremely clear and how that works. Like Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. So however you're going to reconcile all this, there's one God. But we have God the Father. We have this experience of Jesus. And then as we talked about last Sunday, throw into that Pentecost and the beginning to understand that somehow God in this different kind of thing flows in us and comes to live within us as temples. That somehow we experience God within us in this third way of the Holy Spirit. And you begin to see that again surfacing in the way people write about this in, in the Holy Scriptures. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. It's part of what Romans 8 says. And so we get that however we begin to envision this thing, the Holy Spirit's part of this too, as God. So now we've got these three things. And the thing we get from scripture is if you go do a word study in the Bible and you go look at um, you know, an index trying to find it, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. What you will find are Trinitarian patterns. We'll, I'll say more on that in a minute. But you won't find the Trinity directly that way. And so what people say, theologians say, is that the Trinity is something that is uncovered. It's not proclaimed, turned, let me turn to passage such and such so we can talk about the Trinity because it's set out in great detail here. It's these patterns and that, that, that it's uncovered. Um, many years ago, I, I had the um, joy of getting to meet Alistair McGrath, this Oxford theologian who's very, very prolific, who's written like the best-selling systematic theology book in the world. Um, and he says this about it all. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't invented. It was uncovered. The doctrine of the Trinity is not some arbitrary, outdated 
dictate handed down by some confused council. It's the inevitable result of wrestling with the richness and complexity of the Christian experience of God. It's how we unpack the Christian experience of God. And people began to see this. This is like looking out there and uncovering it and seeing it like somebody who's making a map and seeing the mountains are over here and the valleys are there and the river's there and the sea's there. It's uncovering and writing about it. And our experience as people living out our faith is enriched by it because we begin to understand God the Father, who's the creator, who does all these things. We, we begin to understand something more of God the Redeemer and the Son and Jesus, or God the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us and empower our living out of the faith. And in some ways, somehow God wants us to understand him as one and three. One God, three essences, or however we want to begin to define it, that there's this complexity that's taking place on Trinity Sunday. And I get it. It's a hard thing to grapple with what we do with that, because it is extremely complex. But maybe I'm reminded about how St. Augustine in the fourth century said that if you can comprehend it, it's not God. That there is always the finite trying to understand the infinite. And there will always be mystery. And if that's a problem, you're gonna just have to get over it if you're gonna walk forward. But it's a good mystery. It's a mystery that upholds the holiness of God. It's a good mystery in that it calls us into a richer faith in how we live things out. But we'll never comprehend it fully. There is a, it's a mystery, a good mystery, but it's there. I think about how the Brazilian theologian um, um, writes about this. Um, we, we think about Leonardo Boff says this. He says, seeing the mystery in this perspective enables us to understand how it provokes reverence. The only possible attitude to what is supreme and final in our lives. It's not a mystery that leaves us dumb and terrified, but one that leaves us happy, singing and giving thanks. Mystery, it's like a cliff. We may not be able to scale it, but we can stand at the foot of it, touch it, praise its beauty. So it is with the mystery of the Trinity. You won't find the Trinity straight up in the Bible, but you'll find this biblical pattern. And you'll get that when Jesus finally comes around at the very end of his ministry to charging his followers to go forth in the world, he tells them, go out and baptize. And he tells them to do it in the name, singular, in the name, singular, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we get singular, there's one God, but somehow, some way, there are these three essences. And, and again, there are lots of passages in scripture where we could see it and talk about it. One can think about Jesus's own baptism, how the, all three are there and involved in the Trinity. The son, who's the one being baptized, the father acknowledging him, the spirit descending and empowering him for ministry, sending him out from there. And it, all three involved. And how the, the church grappled with this for a while to try to formulate it but the experience of it, they got. So very, in the very early parts of scripture writing that takes place in the New Testament, you'll, you, you begin to see these patterns um, being presented. One can think about when you get to the end of 2 Corinthians in the 13th chapter, 13th verse, St. Paul gives a Trinitarian blessing. 
at the very end of it, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. That, that's the blessing he wants to give, is this Trinitarian blessing. So again, it's, it's throughout. And there, when we go through all this experience and we unpack all, the, all this experience, maybe now we're ready to try to engage. How are you going to say this? Now we're going to get to an academic thing for just one second. How, how would you begin to try to describe this? I've said it in the past in many different ways. I'm going to quote, actually paraphrase um, the evangelical theologian, J.I. Packer. This is how he tries to summarize it very succinctly. Um, he summarizes it this way. He says, the basic asser assertion of the doctrine is that the unity of the one God is complex. We, we got that. The three personal subsistences, as they're called, are co-equal, co-eternal centers of self-awareness, each partaking of the full divine essence, the stuff of deity, if we can say that, along with the other two. And they're not three roles played by one person. That's the heresy of modalism. Nor are they three gods in a cluster. That's tritheism. And, so, and the truth is, all of the many analogies you've probably ever heard growing up, I'm just going to tell you, like, I love all my fellow um, clergy people around the world, but there are so many heresies that get repeated on Trinity Sunday. The three-leaf clover, no. The, the Milky Way bar, no. The water that's ice and, and, you know, and, and water and whatever else, all those kinds of analogies don't work. Be okay with handling some mystery of a God who is infinite, you know, like, like go beyond that. But what we have is this doctrine, which is hard, but it's at the center of what we believe. The three and one and how we, and we unpack that. But at the end of the day, I'll, I think we also should add quickly that Christianity is not about coming to advocate to you that you adopt some complex idea, but that you come meet a person and walk with him and live life with him. This God, as we experience in these three, these three, this threefold pattern, and maybe this whole doctrine of the Trinity is not trying to state some kind of precision, but to give us some kind of tool or way to try to understand God, like a tinker toy model of an atom doesn't define what an atom is, but maybe it helps us begin to try to think about what it is. And so it is with the Trinity. But part of this is with us is if we start to get this wrong, it actually matters in our spiritual lives. Like I wanna, I wanna pivot for the last part of this sermon and just say, okay, so how does it matter in living out our faith? I wanna suggest that if you are living your faith where we don't hold a healthy, robust view of the Trinity and, and have this in our lives, that we're missing out on things. You know, if you think there's only God the creator you begin to downplay their importance of redemption and Jesus's work and the work of the Holy Spirit. Or if you don't have a good, strong belief in God, the Father, the Creator, maybe you don't see creation the same way. Maybe you're not as open to science or whatever. Or if you only see Jesus as the Redeemer, you may get wrapped up in dogmatism around, do you have your views right about Jesus? And that's all that matters to you. You got the formula? Or if you don't have a place for the Holy Spirit, you're probably failing at some level in your spiritual life because God coming to dwell in you and be active and empowering you 
as we talked about last week, is vital to living out our Christian faith. And if we downplay that, we miss out. All of these, they all have to be held in some, in some kind of balance. And all of them in our view and conception of how we live out our faith. I want to end uh, today's sermon with, with a bit of a long quote, but I want to do two quotes. I want to tell you my favorite vision of the, of the Trinity is to think about it, how when you begin to see God as these three essences in one, we begin to see a profound community of love. We begin to understand how when, when first John talks about how God is love, what that means, because in the Godhead, there's this perfect exchange of love taking place. So I want to, I want to read two quotes. The first one is short. This is one of my favorite um, statements about the, about the, um, the Trinity. This comes from the Roman Catholic catechism. If you got baggage, put it aside and just listen for a minute. Um, this is what it says. It says, God's very being is love. By sending his only son and the spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And he's destined us to share in that exchange. And I've said it before, and I, it's the core of what I believe. Our Christian journey is deeper and deeper and deeper into this perfect love being exchanged within the Trinity. Now I'm going to end with a, a, an analogy, or st- really a story, that's um, given by a pastor named Kevin Miller, who graduated from Wheaton College, which is a Christian academic college in the Chicago area. Um, it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. So I'm going to end with this. So just listen to this. He says, perhaps the best analogy for the Trinity is a time when you experienced a community of love. Maybe a family when it was at its most healthy and loving. A sports team when people stopped worrying about their own egos. A support group where you felt cared for in spite of your brokenness. A music group when you finally got lost in the music. Because to experience the Trinity is to experience a community of love. So when I think about analogies of the Trinity, I think of Mike Yearly's apartment. When I came to Wheaton, I moved 700 miles from family. And back then, there was no email, no instant messages, no cell phones. My college roommate hung out by himself. My first winter, it stowed 90 inches. I felt like I was living in the Arctic. So I was lonely and literally out in the cold. And then a senior named Mike Yearly invited me to his apartment for dinner and a Bible study. I got there and the first thing I noticed was that his apartment had real walls made out of drywall, not cinder blocks painted over too many times. His wife, Lynn, was cooking a home-cooked meal. I could smell it as soon as I walked in the door and it tasted way better than anything in the college cafeteria. There were other people there too, a guy named Dave, another named Dan, who were upperclassmen and popular. They would have never spent time with me or even known who I was but because I'd been invited to Mike's apartment, they talked to me. We all talked and laughed and played games and listened to music, drank coffee, hung out until supper late. And I walked home with Dan. I thought, wow, no one's got a huge bloated ego. They just care about each other. That apartment became for me a home and my sanity. Whenever I had a question or problem about dating, I would head to Mike's apartment. Whenever I had a question or a problem about the spiritual life, 
I would head to Mike's apartment. At the time, I was trying to live my Christian life in a legalistic way, in my own power, which is really a stinky way to do it. But I didn't know any other way. So Mike and Dan began teaching me how to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. What I found in Mike's apartment was this, a community of love. What I felt there was a little picture of what Jesus talked about when he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, a counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. To be a Christian is to get an invitation to Mike's apartment. To be a Christian is to be invited into a community of love that we call the Trinity. In the Trinity, you never find one person who's grumpy. Never find a person who's taking love but not giving it out. No one's critical or cynical or jaded. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in absolute unity of love. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son gives glory to the Father. The Spirit knows the thoughts of God and prays to God for our sake. The Father has all the authority. It gives that authority to the Son. And the Spirit speaks on God's authority. Meanwhile, the Son lives in absolute obedience to the Father. For the Son does only what He sees the Father doing. And the Spirit is sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. Do you see that in the Trinity there's no jealousy, no politics, no power plays? The reason we cannot find many good analogies for the Trinity is that we constantly live in such a broken world, broken relationships, that it's hard for us to imagine a community in which there's constant joy and creativity and each person's pouring himself out for the others. It sounds crazy, but I think it would be theologically accurate to say this. God is a party and you're invited. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and you call us into a profound mystery in living out our faith. In doing so, Father, help us to be open to the fullness of you as you've presented yourself in history as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us in living that out to be a blessing to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.